Hi, and welcome to the Ministry Network Podcast. I'm your host, James Baird. Today, we'll be speaking with Pastor Jason Halopoulos. Pastor Halopoulos is an experienced minister and author of the New Pastors Handbook. Today, we'll be talking about principles for new pastors. Ministry Network recently released a new teaching series called Behind the Pulpit. In this series, you can learn from pastors with decades of experience, like John Piper, Alistair Begg, Steve Lawson, Conrad Mbewe, and many others. Visit ministrynetwork.com forward slash behind the pulpit to learn more. Now, let's talk with Pastor Halopoulos. Pastor Halopoulos, thanks so much for joining us here on Ministry Network. Uh, James, good to be here. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's our pleasure. Well, you have written a wonderful book called The New Pastor's Handbook, and we're excited to talk about it with you today. Yeah, it was a joy to write. That, was a, that book was a labor of love, so really enjoyed writing that one. Well, we'd love to hear about the story that led to you writing it. Yeah, you know, it came as a result of just spending a lot of time with young men. I have found, I think it's probably because of the men that invested in me over the years, and I benefited so much from their mentorship and discipleship that I've always seen it as part of my ministry calling that I need to invest in other young men and pass along some of the things that I've learned. And it was really in those conversations with a lot of young men over the years that I just thought, you know, it might be helpful just to put a few of these things on a piece of paper and see if there's anything here in the way of a book. So that's kind of how it arose. I'm lucky to have a small window into how helpful you are to young men training for ministry because two close friends, they got to be mentored by you. So as soon as I had the chance to bring you on the podcast, I wanted to take it. Yeah, we were just talking about them. So Tom Buter and Nate Grossima, uh, two dear, dear brothers that are friends of yours and they have become dear friends of mine. So yeah, delight to spend time with them. I learned as much from them as I hopefully taught them, but they have, they've been a joy in my life. So They're two wonderful, wonderful people. They are. Well, let's start from the very beginning. How would you advise a young seminary student or someone who's considering the pastorate who's questioning the validity of their call to ministry? Yeah, you know, what's interesting, that the two young men we just talked about are two of the young men that have gone through an internship program here at URC with me, and so we usually have one or two each year, and I, I tell them all at the end of the year, I don't tell them at the beginning of the year, but one of the things I do within the first, I wait about a month, but then I always go on a walk with them around the neighborhood that's behind the church, and on that walk we have this conversation about uh, called a ministry. And I always have him read, you'll appreciate this, James, uh, Clowney's book on the call to ministry. So that's the entry gate, right? And on that walk, after about a month in the internship, out of probably the dozen young men that I've seen through the internship program here, I think only one has at the end of that walk said, I, I know I'm called to ministry. Most of them are doubting at that point. And it's it's purposeful because by the end of their year with us, we'll go on a similar walk. And almost all of them on that similar walk at the end of the year say, I I just I think I am probably called and can't imagine not pursuing this. So all that say, I think a lot of us wrestle with it. And 
as I tell men, it, it, it needs to be, look, first of all, you have to have a love for God, love for God's Word, and a love for God's people. And you really want to see your life being poured out to tie those three things together over the course of a lifetime. And it can't be something that is tepid. It is, no, you have a great passion for those three things and tying them together. You know, the other is that uh, I think young men trying to discern, you know, whether to go to seminary, I say, you know, it's you take that step, and the Lord often in the midst of that seminary education confirms it. But the great confirmation, you know, as our PCA Book of Church Order says, you know, it's the that inward call, which most men, they need some sense of that, and that's what I was just referring to. They need, I love the language in the PCA, BCO, it's the manifest approbation of God's people. And everybody goes, what does that mean? Well, it's it's that people see your gifts, and it's more than just mama that says you have the gifts. You know, it's uh, there's a manifest approval of that. I've benefited from him teaching and from him leading. and But the great confirmation comes, and it only comes with that church court calling you. So when there are other godly brothers that, have, that are in the ministry that are making that call to you, and, and that often is great reassurance down the road when as every pastor does, goes through hard times in ministry, and most pastors I know have gotten to a place where they think, oh, am I to continue in this? Can I keep doing this? And it's that last part of the call that often reassures us, look, this wasn't just an internal sense. This wasn't just my mom and her friends that thought I had the gifts. There is a, a court of the church that, by the leading of God's Spirit, also said, no, you're called to this, and so it provides confidence to continue in it. Hmm, that's so helpful. Thank you. Let's say someone feels the internal call, seeing that being confirmed by God's people. Now they're candidating. They've graduated seminary, they're candidating. But they've recently, only recently graduated from seminary, and their role is a senior pastor. What advice would you give to that person? Well, if it's a senior, because there's other staff, and that's what you mean by senior pastor, not just solo pastor, senior pastor. I think a a young man going into that one, he needs to know if he can lead a staff because that's a whole different thing than just leading a church. So you have to have some experience of leading people in not just ministry, but in the workplace, I think, to be able to do something like that. It's a different can of worms. But the, you know, when you go to candidate at a church as a senior pastor, it's going to be that you feel called to preach, which I hope every man does that's seeking to be a pastor, but it is this is going to be your week in, week out uh, routine, that you can lead a group of men as in a session, and a group of elders, and that you've seen some fruit from such leading. And you really got to wrestle with whether this church, whether you have the maturity to lead these people, because it is a you're walking right into it. And, and I think in previous generations, men jumped at it a lot more than they do in this generation. You know, Paul saying to Timothy, don't let them look down on you because of your youth. You know, you think of a, a Robert Murray McShane and how young he was, or you think of a, even a George Whitfield was often outside the local church, but you think of how young these men were. Jonathan Edwards, as he goes to assist his grandfather, but quickly is taking over a church. I think men need to jump on it sooner than I think is normal in our culture, but 
you got to make sure you're ready and that you can lead in those kind of ways. So helpful. All right, so a pastor is now leading a church, and they're starting to notice some embedded cultural practices, just how the church operates, its rhythms, its expectations, that the pastor thinks should change. Uh, what advice would you give to someone in that situation? You know, learn this a hard way. I think most things you want to be patient. Remember, the, the, the first church I served at, I was family and youth pastor. But the session would listen to things that I would bring to them. And one of the things I've always been passionate about is having children in corporate worship. I believe there are covenant children. They should be in the midst of God's people for the great event that we're doing each week. This, this is the high point of our week. This is what defines us as a community more than anything else. So we should have our children in there. I was passionate about that, brought that to the session, worked it through the session. They were all on board. And then I just kind of announced it to the church and that we were closing all the children's classes during one of the hours and that we were only going to have a nursery up to to two years old. And, you know, some of the families, they were concerned. And so we had a meeting and I remember just articulating it again and then we charged on. And I look back now and think that that was bad shepherding. It was really bad shepherding on my part. It was not walking patiently with the flock. Uh, it wasn't understanding that there's a benefit to taking a long view. You know, families left the church over it and didn't need to if I'd taken the time to provide some outlets for them and we'd taken a much longer and patient view. What often goes through my mind is Calvin, Calvin, who was no wallflower, and he had strong opinions about things, especially about, think of something like worship and There's a pastor in France that writes to Calvin, and he's concerned because the congregation he's pastoring uses candles in a service. And of course, the history of Roman Catholic Church and the use of candles and offering prayers to saints, etc. And Calvin, interestingly, it's a church in Wexel. He writes back to this pastor and in essence says, listen, if I was starting a church, I would never introduce it. But it's not worth destroying the church over. And what's he doing? He's just telling him, be patient. That's part of being a shepherd. You take a long view with the people that you're ministering to. You're not there for two years or three years. That If you go to a church with that in view, you shouldn't be going to that church. It's, look, I'm going here for the long run so I can be patient and I can teach to these things. I can labor to these things and I can gently move them to these things. And that is caring for the flock. So... Again, so helpful. Can you discuss how a pastor can avoid the pitfall that I imagine is easy for all of us to fall into, and and that is believing that you might be too good for a particular ministry? So, for example, youth and children's ministry, you know, maybe the pastor has other things that they think should take the priority. How would you shepherd them through prioritizing those aspects of leading a church? So, let me say it in, in Two regards. It could sound like that these things are opposed to one another, but I don't think they are. In in one sense, we are never too good for inner ministry, right? We are sinners saved by grace, and whatever, whatever gifts I have or whatever abilities I have or experience I have that I'm bringing to bear in my ministry, it's purely the gift of God, and so I'm not too good for anything. I remember I went to 
this was not kind of this older pastor, but I graduated seminary, was doing a full-time internship at a PCA church, and I was trying to find a call. And I remember scheduling a lunch with this pastor that was doing a church plant, and I heard he was looking for an associate. And so I scheduled a lunch with him. I sat across the table from him, and I said, listen, I, I would love to labor with you, be in this church plant. I think I could add some benefit. And I remember him looking at me, not the most tender of moments, and he said, you young men coming out of seminary think you have a lot more to offer than you do. <laughs> and, and in one sense, he was right. In another, he wasn't right at all. I think we have gifts to bring to bear, and there are things that a young man can bring to whatever position he's coming into that the Lord uses for the benefit of that ministry in that church. So you can be gifted for these things. I think looking down on things and saying, I'm too gifted for that thing, i got to check my pride. There is a lot to learn. I, I tell young men, especially going into ministry, don't rule out that youth ministry job. You know, every man wants to be a preacher and wants to lead a church. And to, uh, that, that youth pastor position, it creates kind of its own little environment for doing ministry where you have to teach every week. You can make that a sort of preaching. You have to disciple. You have to counsel. You have to relate with kids. You have to relate with adults, their parents. You have to mediate conflicts. You have to try and figure out how to bring people together as you have children or youth that are in different segments of schooling or society or whatever. There are a lot of things that are being honed as you're in a, a youth ministry, and that is great training for a solo or senior pastor down the road. So, don't look down on those things and think you're beyond it. But having said that, I think we do have to weigh whether the talents the Lord has given to us, whether they are best used in this context. And so, and that is best ascertained by seeking the advice of others that will be honest around you and say, no, brother, this, this fits you. It's a three-talent position and it fits you. There's some men that Friends of mine I look at and I say, brother, you're you're an eight or nine talent man, and I, I think you need to be at a church like this and for the benefit of the kingdom. Not because you're great, but for the benefit of the kingdom. That's how God has gifted you. So seek advice of other men. Wow, that's so balanced. That's really, that's great. It's really helpful. So your book talks about how pastors, they just, they can't do everything. But oftentimes in practice, it's hard to figure out what you should and should not do. So can you just walk me through some principles about how to prioritize and delegate some aspects of your work? Yeah. What I do each week is I sit down on, for me, it's Monday morning, and I use Evernote because that way it's in my pocket, my phone, it's on my computer. It's, but use something, and what I do is I lay out my week, and I do it in segments of three for each day. So morning, afternoon, evening, and I just plot out. The first thing I plot out is my devotional time. Second thing I plot out is sermon prep, because those two things are essential. If uh, I don't have time for those, then everything else falls. And then third, I plot out time with my family. And people say, ah, you schedule your family? Yes, I schedule my family. Because <laughs> here, here, look, here's the secret. So ministry, there's always more to do, right? There's, And there's always more people that want you to do. So they need an appointment or they need to schedule a counseling or there's an emergency that usually 
oftentimes isn't an emergency. But if you say, I, I can't, you know, this is an evening I've set aside for this or that, or, you know, I'm not working tonight, that doesn't work. If you tell somebody, I have an appointment, nobody argues with a calendar. Nobody. So I schedule my family, one, so that they have time, but two, also so I can say, look, I can't make that meeting. I already have an appointment. And nobody argues with that, and people understand that. So those three things always take priority, and then everything else falls in. I think a pastor, you can't just be a preacher. you got to spend time with your people. you got to have an open door. So there's got to be time for meetings with people. There's got to be times for the spontaneous meetings. There's got to be visitations. There's got to be time to invest in your presbytery and your denomination. There's got to be times to do outreach and, you know, be out in the community. So you got to schedule all of those times, but those top three are the priority. My devotions, sermon prep, time with family, because if that's not solid, everything else fails. Hmm. Can we dig in a little deeper on delegation? I feel like the first thing is to realize you need to delegate. It's hard to admit you can't do everything. But then after that, it's easy to delegate and it's hard to delegate well. Do you have any wisdom on on how to delegate without just basically letting go and letting God, giving it to someone and never checking back in until you expect it to be finished? You know, yeah. Could you help us think through some of those points? How do you do it well? Yeah, I think two things are always in the forefront of my mind when I'm thinking about delegation. One is, if I'm going to delegate something to somebody, I've given them that responsibility, which means I need to give them that authority. So that means that, look, once I've given it to them, I'm hands off, and i got to let them run with it. Now I may check in or I may ask them to report back, but they now have the freedom to accomplish that within whatever parameters I've given them. So give them that authority. The second is, I think a lot of men, especially in the pastorate, make the mistake of not allowing things to fall between the cracks and don't allow that kind of margin there. What happens is the pastor will say, my ruling elders will not visit anybody in the hospital. They will not counsel anybody. Well, what happens? Someone says that someone's in the hospital and the pastor is immediately there. Someone needs counseling, the pastor is immediately there. So he doesn't create any margin by which there is the need and men will start to slide in and step up. So part of what we have to do in ministry is allow that space where we're not jumping to everything and we're tapping men on the shoulder and saying, look, we need somebody to do this. If you're always jumping to it and doing it, then no one will see the need and no one will do it. Everybody's busy. So you show the need by allowing there to be a need, and men will rise to the challenge. Mm, what amazing counterintuitive wisdom. That's great. Pastor Halopoulos, how do you deal with criticism when some members think that you're not doing enough? Yeah, I don't know about the criticism of not doing enough. I think there is, there's always criticism. That's part of leading, and... You know, one of my constant prayers throughout ministry, and it's a prayer I pray regularly, is, Lord, give me thicker skin and a more tender heart. Because criticism is just part of leading. If you don't like to be criticized, if you don't like people being unhappy with you, then don't become a pastor. It doesn't work. But, so it's going to be there. So the question is, well, what do you do with it? 
because it's a it's a weekly occurrence for most men in the ministry. One, I think you always receive it and listen to it. You got to be very quick not to be defensive. So I want to search myself, say, is this fair? Is this right? Is there any kernel of truth in what they've said? Uh, a lot of times criticism comes, there, there is, there's some kernel of truth in there that is helpful, and it's at least telling me something about the person that I'm ministering to, if nothing else. And so, great benefit in listening. Two, want to search my heart, see, is there sin I need to repent of? Is there some error that I need to ask for forgiveness for, or something that I need to, to address? But three is a lot of criticism you just have to let go. And this is where men get eaten alive, is it's just not worth the sleepless nights. It's not worth the stewing about it. You got to let it go. I, I saw somebody recently say, I don't know who said it. Wish I did. I just saw it the other day where somebody said, don't think too much about the criticism that someone offers that you would never seek advice from. And that's, you know, a lot of times you just, you gotta, you receive it, you search yourself, nope, that's not true, you gotta let it go. Because if you hold on to all those things, it will eat you alive. So, it's just not worth it. So, search yourself, but let them go if, if they're not true. And keep going. That's great. So, as we all know, pastors are human. They're not immune to the possibility of moral failure. What measures of accountability would you advise pastors to put in place? One is that your your wife should have access to everything. So if my wife my wife sees my calendar, she knows appointments I have every day. She may see somebody on my calendar. She doesn't know what the appointment is about or what conversations we're having, but I want her to feel like, yeah, she knows I'm meeting with this person or that. You meeting with the opposite sex is you always need to be careful and Every man needs to have a plan, and if he's married, that he has agreed with his wife on about that. It should also be a plan that his elders are aware of, that they know. I think it is important that there be at least a elder subcommittee that oversees a pastor and that is checking in on him, just a spiritual life that inquires about his finances, inquires about his drinking, inquires about whether he is angry at different people especially in the congregation, things like that. I think that's very helpful. I think maybe though most importantly, besides that relationship with your wife, for me has been what I call my band of brothers. It was about, I guess, probably seven years ago now, I had three or four dear friends fall in the ministry morally. And I watched that happen over the course of a number of months and thought, I'm not beyond that. And so I contacted seven other pastors that I knew throughout the country, and I said, what if we just created our own little group where we really press into each other's lives to try and help each other to make sure this doesn't happen? And so we do that. We have a text thread that we're on that my phone's blowing up probably every day uh, with pray for me about this, or what do you guys think about this, or I need advice on this. We do a monthly Zoom call where we go around and talk about different issues, and we update each other's lives, and we get together three times a year. We do so at General Assembly, because we're all in the PCA. We do so at a fellowship conference that we all go to each year, and then we get together. I will hear in two weeks where we get together for a retreat 
for two and a half days every year where we just pray and we ask hard questions of each other. And that has been crucial for me over the years of just having these brothers press into my life. Join us next week as we continue our conversation with Pastor Holopoulos. In the meantime, visit ministrynetwork.com forward slash behind the pulpit to learn about our new teaching series.